Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 132, The Scott Cast, Part 9, St. Columba and King Brood. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping us keep this community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Rupert, Stuart, and Stephanie for contributing already. This episode will cover the years 506 to 584, and will focus primarily upon King Brood, also known as King Bridie, the King of the Northern Picts, which is a kingdom that's also referred to as Fortriu, and St. Columba, the man credited with converting the Northern Picts. And he was also a lesser-known monster expert, apparently. All right, let's get to it. And today we're going to talk about the last of the three kings of Pictland who the Pictish Chronicle has anything to say about beyond how long they ruled. But before we begin, I want to make it clear that to a certain extent, we're going to be reading tea leaves here, and we only have a few sources to draw from. I'm going to do my best to stitch them all together for you, but by and large, this information is coming from scattered references in the Pictish Chronicle, Bede's work, the Irish Annals, and the life of St. Columba. That's really it. So we're going to do the best we can and see what we can learn. Now, as you recall from the last episode, we ended with the reign of the second of the three major Pictish kings, Necton the Great. And then, in 506, King Necton, son of Arup, died. And he was succeeded by Drust Guthemach, who reigned for 30 years. And then he was succeeded by Galanan, who ruled for another 12 years. And we know almost nothing about those two kings. But what we do know is that after Galanan died, things really went sideways for Pictland. The issue was that there were two candidates for the throne, Drust, son of Giram, and Drust, son of Drost. And the Picts selected their overking by election, which generally had worked out really well for them. But here, it was turning out to be a bit of a disaster, because they really couldn't decide who to follow. And to make matters worse, the battle lines were pretty starkly drawn between the supporters of the two Drusts. And as you might imagine, this caused a great deal of strife. And rather than falling into civil war, Piglin decided to split into two kingdoms, with Drust son of Drost ruling the north, and Drust son of Giram ruling the south. By the way, am I the only one who thinks there are way too many Drusts at this point? Anyway, so presumably, the thought was that when one of the Drusts died, then the surviving Drust would take the entire kingdom. Sort of like a 6th century Tontine, right? But there was a problem. When Drust, son of Drost, died, and he was the one who was ruling in the north, well, the problem was, when he died, Drust, son of Giram, who ruled in the south, failed to unite the kingdoms. And so instead of unifying, the northern Picts decided to elect another king, and this king was Brood, son of Maelkin. And Brood, who was also referred to as King Bridie, but here will be Brood, was the last of the three Pictish kings who we actually have some detail about in the Pictish Chronicle. So let's try and tie everything that we've learned from the various sources into one coherent story. 
So Brood was probably groomed for high office, and actually, he was raised in the household of Broikun, who was a magus, which can be roughly translated to magician or druid. So probably what we're talking about here is a Pictish high priest. So Brood was raised in the household of a Pictish high priest, and consequently, he was raised pagan, probably staunchly so. And his upbringing does help shed some light on what might have been going on here. I mean, this was a time of tremendous religious strife, so I can't help but wonder if it's possible that his election to king was intended to be something of a bulwark against the spread of Christianity. But here, we're also seeing the clear delineation between the religious lives of the Picts in the area. To the south were the Christian Picts, who had been converted initially by Ninian. And to the north were the pagan Picts. And it seems like, while the two regions were once unified under a single ruler, now the split was firmly entrenched. And the south was still being ruled by a drust. For a while. And then, when he died, rather than the kingdom being absorbed into Brood's kingdom, the rule of the south passed to Drust's brother, Gartnate, son of Giram. And Brood really doesn't appear to have been happy with this move. The thing is, he seems to have been a rather ambitious man, and he wanted to unite the kingdoms once again. But there was an issue. Okay, let's be honest, there are actually many issues, including the presence of a king of the southern Picts who probably didn't like the idea of just giving up his job. But beyond that, there was a bigger cultural divide between the groups. Sure, they were all culturally Pictish, but there was one huge obstacle that created an us-versus-them atmosphere. Religion. And from the look of things, the southern Picts wouldn't budge on that issue, and they didn't have any interest in returning to paganism, nor working with a pagan king. So if the two kingdoms were going to unite, Brood might have started to realize that the North would have to bend on the issue of religion. Something that we've seen time and time again in the main podcast is how ruling dynasties wouldn't let an issue like religion get in the way of political goals. And Brood might have been setting things up to provide us yet another instance of that. And then, in 560, things really started to move. We're told that it was in that year that Brood put the Dalriadan Scots to flight. Now, we aren't given a location for the battle, nor are we told exactly what territory he took. But given the general location of Dalriada, it's possible that Brood's victory might have provided the northern king with access to the Firth of Lorne, and thereby the possibility of a sea passage to Northern Ireland. And that's a really big deal if you want to unite the two Pictish kingdoms and one of them refuses to budge on the issue of religion. Brood had to find a way to learn about this Christian god. And now he had a way to get to the major center of Christian learning in the region. So that's all good news. Further, in the life of St. Columba, which was written much later, by the way, we're also told that Brood was holding hostages of the king of Orkney. So, taken together with also the fight with Dalriada, this could imply that Brood was fighting wars on two fronts, one towards the south of his kingdom and one far to the north. And that certainly would go in line with the characterization that we're given of King Brood being quite a powerful monarch. Anyway, so we're told in the Pictish Chronicle that two years later, in the eighth year of his reign, 
Brood was baptized by Columba. And that's interesting for several reasons. First, because we have something that might seem on first blush like a contradiction in Bede's account. What Bede tells us is that Columba set sail from Ireland, quote, to preach the word of God to the northern Picts, end quote, and that he arrived in the ninth year of the reign of, quote, the powerful Pictish king Brood, son of Malkin, end quote, and that through his preaching and example, he converted the northern Picts, and then the converted Picts gave him the Isle of Iona, and there he founded his monastery, and then his disciples went on to found many other monasteries. So, Obviously, it looks like we do have a bit of a problem here, right? Because the Chronicle has Columba baptizing Brood a full year before Bede even says he arrived in Pickland. So what's going on? Well, the Irish annals say that Columba set sail from Ireland in 563, and that Brood died in 584. So looking at those dates, and also the length of his reign that we know of, namely that he ruled for 30 years, they do seem to support the statement by Bede that he arrived in the ninth year of Brood's reign. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the statement in the Pictish Chronicle was incorrect. The statement was that Brood was baptized by Columba, not that Columba traveled to Scotland. Nothing in the record forecloses the possibility that Brood went to Ireland and became baptized. And the way to Ireland very well could have been opened by his victory over Dalriada two years earlier. But there are problems all over this story. For example, even the monastery contains some problems because the Irish annals conflict with Bede in stating that Iona was given to Columba by Canal, son of Cumgall, the king of the Dalriadan Scots. Though, I suppose, if Dalriada had been defeated and served under the Kingdom of the Northern Picts, both accounts could technically be correct, since any gift granted by the King of the Dalriadan Scots would functionally be a gift from the converted Northern Picts, right? But that's all just idle musings. The point is that while the Pictish Chronicle and Bede might initially seem like they're in conflict on the issue of Brood's conversion, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Brood had the ability, as well as the motivation, to cross the Irish Sea and learn about this strange foreign religion. Now, one other piece of the puzzle that might pique your interest is that we're told at the same time that Brood was fighting the Dalriad in Scots, St. Columba, who wasn't really yet a saint, so let's just call him Columba. So Columba was under threat of excommunication. The thing is, he'd been in the middle of some rather ugly political quarrels. And during some of those quarrels, quite a lot of people had died. And it seems like the last straw was when the Prince of Connacht took sanctuary with him, but he was nonetheless dragged out and killed. The church really didn't appreciate that. So things were bad. And Columba, whether it was deserved or not, was getting quite a bit of the blame for it. And he was on the cusp of losing everything. So tying it all together, I can't help but wonder if it's possible that Brood, who was in a bit of a bind on how to unite the Pictish kingdoms, and Columba, who is in desperate need of a win to get him back in good standing with the church, decided to strike a bargain that would grant him Iona and allow him to conduct missionary work in northern Pictland. It would have suited both their needs. 
And tradition holds that St. Brendan convinced the Synod, who was seriously considering excommunicating Columba, to instead allow him to stay with the church, but to force him into exile. So all of this could account for Brood's early baptism, and then Columba's subsequent arrival and missionary work in Scotland. And of course, Columba did end up leaving Ireland and would become one of the most famous saints of Scotland. Now, the implication from the record is that Columba traveled across Scotland to visit King Brood multiple times. And we can say that because we read of, quote, his first tiring expedition to King Brood, end quote, which suggests that there was more than one expedition. And another reference is somewhat more ambiguous, but it could also indicate multiple trips. Quote, for the rest of his life, that ruler greatly honored the holy and venerable man, end quote. Does that mean that he honored him by granting him guest rights? If that's the case, then it sounds like he visited on a regular basis. Or was this more along the lines of honoring someone from afar? It's hard to say, but from the sounds of it, Columba visited at least twice. But let's get back to that first tiring expedition. We're told that upon Columba's arrival, King Brood was, quote, uplifted with royal pride acted haughtily, and did not open the gate of his fortress at the first arrival of the blessed man, end quote. Adobnan then tells us that Columba then made the sign of the cross on the doors and knocked, and the doors miraculously opened for him. And following this, it seems that King Brood was rather friendly to Columba. Now, as you might imagine, this situation deserves some discussion because it really is rather odd. The fact that Brood would have kept the gates of his fortress barred is not unusual at all. It's a fortress. The idea of a fortress is to keep foreign intruders on the outside. Leaving the gates open when foreigners are arriving would kind of defeat the entire purpose. So that's point number one. Point number two is, when people force their way past those gates, whether it's with the sign of the cross or with a battering ram, things can get a bit hairy. So if we're going to take a dominant at face value, the real miracle here is not that he unlocked the gates and opened them. The real miracle is that King Brood and his men didn't kill him immediately when he did it. But let's look at this situation a little closer. Who are we talking about here? Whose fortress is this? We're talking about the King of the Picts, an incredibly powerful and wealthy man. Do you think he's going to be working the gates of his own fortress? No, he'd have guards who handled that matter. So is it possible that the gates were locked, and then upon seeing that it was a holy man, maybe the same holy man who had earlier baptized him, that Brood ordered the gates to be opened? That could account for why they were locked and then later opened, and it would also account for why King Brood was suddenly friendly towards Columba. Anyway, we're told that following that odd beginning, Columba was then allowed to carry out his mission, and he began to convert the northern Picts. But we really don't have all that many details on it. There are a few notes made in the life of St. Columba, which was written by Adamnan, but we need to remember that it was written after his death, and that it wasn't a history, but rather, it was a religious text which was mostly focused upon miracles. In fact, there are only two stories in the life that discuss how Columba went about converting the Picts. And even those two were mostly focused upon miracles. 
The first is the story of a Pictish family who was baptized, and within a few days the son became ill and died. The Pictish men took this as a sign of the weakness of the Christian God. And then Columba heard about the boy's death, and he went to him, and he prayed. And then he stood up and said, quote, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be restored to life and stand upon thy feet. And the boy did as he was commanded. The local Picts were impressed by Columba's power to raise the dead, and apparently thoroughly unaware of how he would now have an insatiable hunger for brains. And so they clamored to convert to this new religion. The other story involves Columba walking along Loch Ness. And he saw something. Seriously, he saw something. But it wasn't a sea monster, though he did earlier see a monster in the loch. I mean, I'm not even making that up. The life of St. Columba includes a mention of something that sounds like Nessie, which I find completely nutty. But anyway, in this particular story, the non-Nessie story, we're told that Columba had a vision of angels waiting to take a pagan into heaven because he had been such a good person for his entire life and they were just waiting for him to be baptized. So Columba rushed off and he found the man and his family and baptized a lot of them. And then the man died. And on the one hand, that's really nice, right? He's ensuring that he gets to heaven. However, having a family member die immediately after baptism probably would have given me a sense of buyer's remorse, no matter how old or sick the family member was. But maybe that's just me. But the point is, that zombies and potential buyer's remorse aside, these really aren't like the stories of conversion that we heard regarding St. Augustine, or when Edwin converted. There, we were given examples of arguments being made and how the religion was being explained to those who showed an interest. But here, we're just given an account of miracles that just happened to be occurring at the same time as conversions. The real focus is upon the miracles. So we should probably take some of this with a grain of salt. And frankly, Adamnan drew his information from learned men from Iona, and presumably also from the library at Iona. So there would be a natural bias towards information regarding Columbus' activities there. And it's pretty clear that he had limited access to information regarding Columbus' activities in northern Pictland. Which really is a shame because his conversion really is what he's famous for but that could account for the lack of information regarding his activities in converting the region, and also why Adamnan doesn't mention King Brood's baptism. He might just not have known it happened. Now, it is possible that the baptism didn't happen at all. However, looking at the archaeological record, including finds at Port Mahamuk, it seems rather clear that there was Christian activity in the region in the 6th century, and that either King Brood was baptized or he was at the very least tolerant of Christians in the area. Anyway, back to Adamnan. So despite the sea monsters, there are things that can be gleaned here. For example, Columba was converting households en masse. It looks like he was going after family units, which is probably the most efficient way to go about it. I mean, too large of a group, and you're going to have to fight groupthink, as well as just general static inertia. There's just too much risk of having naysayers in the crowd. And too small of a group, and you're really not using your time wisely. But family groups? Well, that's not too shabby of an idea. You're talking to more than one person, probably between 5 and 10 people, which is enough to be time efficient, 
but you're also going to cut down on the risk of having a few naysayers who could turn the crowd against you. So while our sample size is small, after all, we just have two stories of him doing conversions, and they might have been aberrations. Maybe he generally talked to large groups or individuals. But whatever the case, it does seem like it was a good idea to talk to family groups, and maybe that's what he was doing. And while Columbo was converting the northern Picts, back down in the south, Garthnate, son of Giram, had died. And he was succeeded by Caeltram, son of Giram. Yep, another son of Giram. This is the third brother that's taking the throne. But he reigned for only about a year, and he was replaced by Talorgan. And then Talorgan was replaced by Drust, son of Muniat. And thank God we're back to the Drusts, right? Anyway, he ruled until 578 when he died. And all the while, things stayed pretty stable in the north. Now, we aren't told how these southern kings died, nor are we told if Brood had a hand in it. But whatever was going on down there, they seemed to have been having a rough time of it. They went through four kings, and some of them rather rapidly. And by this point, Brood had been ruling for about 24 years, and he had been a declared Christian for about 15 of those years. You can almost imagine him sitting up there in the north and saying, Are you sure you don't want to join my kingdom? Things don't seem very good down there. But no, they kept stubbornly wanting to have their own kingdom. And then a young king named Galam was elected to rule the southern Picts. And we aren't given many details, but we're told that after ruling on his own for about a year, he jointly ruled with Brood. And then he lived one more year, and then he died. And it makes you wonder what exactly was happening down south that had all these monarchs dropping dead. But it looks like much like the original split between the two Drusts was supposed to be resolved by a Tontine, this very well might have been another Tontine. And Galam, being young, might have thought that he stood the best chance to benefit. But it didn't really work out that way. And so, in 580... Brood was at last the ruler of a united Pictland. And then four years later, King Brood died, ending his 30-year reign, possibly in battle against his Pictish rivals. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, you name it, and you can find links for all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 